Well, the passage that um, I'm going to be reflecting upon today is the story of Jesus' temptation in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, which has just been read. When the college was smaller and there were fewer faculty, um, it fell to me to join up with an Anglican clergyman to teach preaching at Wycliffe College. And so I did that for about 25 years. Uh, to begin with, with uh, Bishop Peter Mason, and then a little bit later on with, uh, with Barry Parker. Um, that's kind of a, a dangerous thing to confess at the beginning of a sermon, because um, I fear your expectations are going to be overly high. But the reason I tell you is because um, I would come to passages like Matthew chapter 4, and I would try to help students understand and think best about how to preach this passage. And that, in some ways, is no easy, uh, no easy thing. And the problem is, is that it can seem easy, but of course nothing in life is quite as easy as it seems. I can remember um, one student coming to me, uh, and she was preaching this passage, and uh, she said, I don't know what to do with this story. That made me, made me a little bit nervous to begin with, because I felt like saying, why don't you find out what the story wants you to do with it? So I said to her, what's the story about? And she said, uh, well, the story is about the temptation of Jesus. Satan is um, attacking him on the basis of his being the son of God and is trying to trip him up. So it's about Jesus. I said, oh, that sounds like a good assessment to me. What are you going to preach on? And then she said, well, I think I'm going to preach upon the kinds of trials that we face in our life. And in a sense, I thought, okay, logical enough. Um, I go down that road fairly often. I think all of us have. I'm not saying it's inappropriate. But I wanted to kind of push her just a little bit. I said, so the passage is about Jesus, but you're going to talk about us. And immediately she saw kind of the irony and um, the, the challenge. And we do that often in preaching a text, uh, don't we? We often fall into what I call the we too hermeneutic. And the older I get, the more mellow I get. Uh, 25 years ago, um, I was all over students for running quickly to the we too hermeneutic. You know what the we too hermeneutic is? You see something in the Bible, uh, something happens to Jesus, something happens to the disciples, and you say, we too go through storms in life, right? Or we too face temptations in life. Well, we do. And doubtless, Jesus has some good examples for us because uh, the incarnate Son of God could never be a bad example to us. Um, but that only takes us so far. And so what I've done in more recent years is to encourage students to know when they invoke the We Too hermeneutic and uh, not to run to it too quickly. Because, of course, you end up talking about us a whole lot more than you end up talking about God. And the point of preaching is really to talk about God and to talk about Jesus. But I have to be relevant, you say. <laughs> well, friends, that's where the trick comes. Uh, if God is not relevant, we are in deep trouble. If Jesus is not relevant, we're in deep trouble. But still, it makes it a challenge, doesn't it? So in the spirit of um, what uh, Fred Craddock, a famous preacher of, um, a famous professor of preaching, once advocated, he suggested that a good way to shape a sermon is to uh, take people on a journey of discovery. So I want to do that with us this morning in trying to answer the question, as I think of um, ourselves as all students of the Word of God, as to how best we might preach this passage. And of course there's no best way to do it, but there are some better and worse ways to do it. 
So we're going to look a little bit at the context of Matthew 4 this morning, and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles. In the Black Bibles, in the New Testament section, not surprisingly, it's like page number two. It's got to be something close to that in the blue section. And I promise you that if you pull out your Bible, I will not uh, make you um, feel silly for having done so. And as you're turning, let me remind you of another uh, quip that often comes with this passage. And people have often preached from this passage saying, God wants us to quote scripture when we're tempted. And I think that's probably a pretty good idea. But then the, the cynic in me began to say, okay, well, what if you're facing sexual temptation? Should you quote from the Song of Songs? <laughs> that's going to make it worse, isn't it? So it's always a little more complicated. And the rule of thumb that I like to do is to say, how does the text in its context want to be heard? So I want to invite you on a pilgrimage this afternoon in the moments that we have. And let's ask ourselves what the story is about. And I think a good thing to do is to back up and to begin to look at the beginning of the story and to understand its context. So we get some hints about the meaning of the story from the initial context. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Um, it says, I think very tellingly, an account of the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, <laughs> that's not surprising. The Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So that's a pretty good clue as to what the story is about. And that tends to be confirmed by the focus on Jesus. We have the story of the birth of Jesus. And towards the end of chapter 1, we soon find that Matthew is concerned with Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So in the story of the birth of Jesus, he invokes this passage from Isaiah 7.14 to say, It says in Scripture, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Then we come to the closer context um, of the preceding chapter. I'll come back to one verses 21 to 23 in a minute. Uh, the preceding chapter is the story of John the Baptist. And it's his um, ministry in the wilderness, his ministry of calling people to repentance. But as you look at the themes there, the themes that are announced in the beginning of chapter 3 kind of lead up to the themes that occur in the baptism. And the baptism and the temptation of Jesus are uh, closely hinged. So in the beginning, we see that uh, John the Baptist is this wily figure. He comes in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 3. He's preparing the way of the Lord. Um, he is preparing a path. And notice the description in chapter 3, verse 4. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That actually comes from the story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. And so we're supposed to think, I think, of John the Baptist as kind of an Elijah figure. And you remember that just as Elijah passed over the mantle to Elisha, so too in chapter 3 we have a transition between Elijah as John the Baptist and Jesus. And I think in some ways Jesus becomes Elijah even though uh, John the Baptist is clearly the primary figure for that in Matthew's Gospel. But he also becomes Elisha. If you read the Old Testament stories of Elisha, 
Uh, Jesus does a lot of the things that Elisha does. Uh, raises the dead. He even feeds miraculously a mob of people and there's less over food. So Jesus, I think, understands his identity as being Elisha. So Jesus is an Old Testament figure. He's associated with prophecy. He's associated with the Messiah, with the descendants of Abraham, with the descendants of David. And he stands in this tradition of prophets, which begins with Moses and carries on in Elijah and Elisha. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told, uh, Israel's told, watch out for a prophet in the tradition of Moses. He'll behave like Moses. He'll behave like Elijah. And by inference, he'll behave like Elisha. So we have some clues here um, as to uh, what is going on. And then in the preceding section, the baptism of Jesus, um, there are um, several things that come to the fore about Jesus. He comes to fulfill righteousness. Um, he comes as the Son of God. He also comes as the Spirit-endowed suffering servant. This comes from uh, verse 17 of chapter, or verse 17 of chapter 3, where the statement from heaven uh, collects a number of passages that come from the Psalms, which point to Jesus as the Son of God, and they also point to this figure, a servant who is endowed with the Spirit, who is going to suffer on behalf of God's people. So I would think that uh, we're getting some kind of an idea about the themes in the passage. And when we come to the story itself, the story of the temptation of Jesus, if we read it carefully, we can pick up some themes from it. Jesus is obedient, isn't he? He undergoes self-denial. Um, he resists the devil by denying himself and by declaring and showing himself to be radically obedient uh, to the commands of God, to the extreme. And he passes the test, as it were. So if you're following along in the outline, and I hope yeah, you are, uh, if only it will make my ambiguity more clear, we've now come to the point where we've been looking at hints from the prior context, and I think we're prepared now to have a preliminary hypothesis as to what the passage is about. And I want to suggest that perhaps, uh, and this comes close to the consensus, I think, is that Jesus, through radical, faithful obedience to God's commands, he passed the test of Israel's wilderness journey that Israel herself did not pass. So Jesus is a lot of things. Jesus, as we've said, is the son of David. Uh, he's the son of Abraham. He's the Messiah. He's a Moses figure. And he's an Elisha figure. But he also is Israel. He's the embodiment of Israel. Remember that passage, out of Israel I called my, out of Egypt I called my son, in uh, chapter 2? That was a passage that was originally spoken of with respect to Israel, but which is now spoken of with respect to Jesus. So Jesus is all these things in one, in one um, package. He's Israel, he's Moses, he's Elijah. I would suggest he's Elisha, he's the son of dead, he's the son of David, uh, he's the Messiah, but he's also the suffering servant who is going to suffer on behalf of the people. So I think that's not a bad idea as a preliminary hypothesis. Um, but there are some additional hints, and this is one of the things that I find the most helpful when I come to study scripture. And that is, what don't I understand about the story? Because those things are often things that I think um, point in the right direction. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we've read it so often we don't notice it, but think about what's being said here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit the same spirit that just descended upon him peacefully as a dove. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. 
Well, that's a little bit like, if you think back to World War II or something, it would be a little bit like the King of England um, hiring a, a plane in order to fly Churchill over to Germany in order to be tortured by Hitler. You think, like, <laughs> the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. So that's something that's nagging at us and we're going to come back to. The second is there's, that there's an assumption in the passage that Jesus has to play by certain rules. And those rules are that he's not allowed to act supernaturally. Uh, why shouldn't Jesus be allowed to turn the stones into bread? Well, you say he was being like Israel. But Israel was allowed manna. I mean, God provided manna. Um, Jesus later on performs miracles. So why um, do the rules for Jesus preclude his acting supernaturally? And then the third uh, additional hint might be to ask, why does it especially matter that we should be told that Jesus passed an Old Testament Israel? Um, we, might, we might guess that, given who he was. So what is Matthew trying to tell us in this? And there are a few other tensions that I think come into play that we can look at by returning to the context of Matthew. One is, and this is something that you may have always noticed but never really known what to do with it, and I'm still kind of in that camp myself. It says in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so this man has been born, he's the son of God, he's Jesus, he's going to save us from our sins. And then it says, this was spoken to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. So here there's a tension between Jesus, a human being, um, who's going to suffer for the sins of the world, and Jesus being God. And I think that might be part of the answer to question number two, why do the rules for Jesus preclude his acting supernaturally? Somehow it's part of the destiny of Jesus in order to control his supernatural powers so that he can accomplish God's mission. I've looked at a few other tensions, but I want us to take a look as well at Deuteronomy 8. And I've already broken a rule that I sometimes give to students um, in preaching class. You always have to tell people that there's a relevant purpose for doing all this Bible study. Um, there's going to be a payoff. I know you're interested in scripture like me, but um, this isn't purely a scripture lesson. We're going to come to some points that I think are going to be influential. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 with me. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8 are a vital part of the background of the story. And I want to read Deuteronomy 8, uh, 1 to 10. Page 128 in the black uh, versions of your Old Testament. Uh, and probably somewhere close to that in the blue. This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe, so that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord God has led you around these 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years here. In order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled, you by telling, he humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone. Clearly this passage is in mind um, in Matthew's understanding of Jesus' temptation. But by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Um, and then let's skip down uh, to verse 6. 
Therefore, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. A land where you may eat bread without scarcity, reference to bread, where you will lack nothing, a land where stones are iron, and from whose hills you may mine copper. So this passage clearly seems to be uh, relevant. There's um, all kinds of themes here that find their way into um, the story of Jesus' temptation. So at this point, I think we could perhaps, perhaps come up with a partial revision of the hypothesis. And then soon, we're going to be able to cash it in for what I think the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us in this passage. The partial, partial revision of the hypothesis, I think, would now, especially in light of problem number one above, um, why would the Spirit ordain that Jesus be tempted or tested by the devil? Well, we should assume that Jesus is, um, is seeking to accomplish something. In other words, if you, if you read the passage in Deuteronomy, you'll see that Israel, that God put Israel through temptations in the wilderness for a purpose. And those purposes involved entering into rest, having enough food, um, um, entering into a land, um, having uh, stones that would be um, uh, useful for, for mining. And it talks about all kinds of ways in which God is going to care for his people, but that depends upon their obedience. So I think partially it's important to understand for this story that Jesus isn't just kind of repeating history. He's actually completing purposes that were not fulfilled in the time um, of Moses because of the disobedience of the Israelites. So um, that, I think, is partly why uh, we're told this story in Matthew. We should assume that Jesus isn't just repeating history, but he's seeking to accomplish the failed purposes of the wilderness journey. Abundant food, divine pampering, um, and sovereignty over the land, which includes entering the land and being a drawing light to the Gentile nations. All right, well, with that in mind, let's take a look at the three temptations and see, um, remind ourselves of what those are. Jesus is uh, led into the wilderness to be tempted by, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, and he, according to Matthew, he seems to make it through the 40, 40 days, uh, but then, at last, he becomes hungry. Only then does the tempter come to him, and he says, since you are the Son of God, that word if kind of presumes, for the sake of argument, that this really is true, so let's say, for the sake of argument at least, that you're the Son of God. Why don't you command these stones to become loaves of bread? Jesus answered, it is written, and here he's quoting the passage from Deuteronomy that we read, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to deny my supernatural prerogative to do that. I'm even going to deny the prerogative that was Israel's to do that. Um, and I will live on the sustenance which comes from meditating upon God's word and being obedient to God's word. Then in the second temptation, as we uh, read, the devil takes him up onto a winged part of the temple. And this must have been a very high place in the temple. The temple was um, oh, at least 150 feet tall. Uh, and it was thought to, in Jewish mind to be the center of the world. So Satan puts Jesus way up high on the temple and he says, jump down. 
Uh, you've just told me how much you trust in God, so prove it. Jump down. Um, and then Satan quotes scripture uh, in a slightly devious way, um, but he's playing, the, he's playing the, uh, the devil's advocate here. What else would we expect of the devil, right? He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will lead you up, so that you will not dash your feet against a stone. Psalm 91 is a psalm that is the most comforting, assuring psalm of all. It says, you are going to be pampered by God. God is going to take care of your every need. And so, again, Jesus refuses to do it. And he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. We come to the third temptation, and again, it belongs on a high mountain. We're showed all the kingdoms of the world, or so is Jesus, and the splendor. And Satan says to him, the devil, all these things I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So I want to suggest that by depriving himself, uh, Jesus is accomplishing the purposes of the very things that he was depriving himself of. Um, if I fulfill Israel's mission, um, then the people of God are going to have abundant, uh, they're going to have all the food they want, they're going to have a land, they're going to experience divine comfort, divine pampering, but that is going to come through my obedience, which first involves uh, self-denial. Uh, well, let me at this point, as you flip to the second uh, side of the, of the page, and I know that we're not too used to this in Anglican context with notes, but you know, sometimes I hear us say, you know, our, our, our congregations are so biblically illiterate. It's a really a problem. And then, you know, we ask them to open their Bibles or give them an outline of a Bible passage, and people say, we don't do this. So let's resist. Let's do this as kind of a, a countercultural pro-Anglican biblical literacy movement, shall we? The second half of your paper on the flip side said, we've seen a correlation between Jesus' temptations and the purposes for which Israel was tempted. Whereas Israel failed, Jesus has succeeded. Through obedience to God's precepts and by denying himself the ideal outcomes of the testings. Food aplenty, divine pampering, and inheriting foreign land. Well, at this point, I think we can come to application, and it's far too late. You've already been patient enough. Uh, so let's cash in and offer a bit of a thought about Lent. Jesus, in a way, has already done it, right? And when you think of the, the way in which he deprived himself in the wilderness and throughout his whole ministry, what difference does it make whether I give up chocolate for Lent? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, an it's an important gesture. Um, it's something that's worth doing, but I think it's really important to put that in perspective. And the perspective that I'd like to suggest is that the things that we give up for Lent are so minuscule in comparison to the massive and beneficial de deprivations and self-denials that Jesus underwent, that they ought to be reminders or tokens of appreciation. It's not as we were doing something to depress, impress God, right? I mean, our salvation is looked after. So the things that we deprive ourselves of at a time of Lent, I think, ought to be tokens of appreciation. We look at the small things, and in retrospect, uh, we recall the bigger things that Jesus did. Uh, we fail at everything we do. Uh, but those little tokens of deprivation that we undergo at Lent can be a helpful reminder of the massive extent to, think, to which um, Jesus underwent deprivation. Well, at this point, we still have a remaining problem, and um, I don't know how many minutes left. I, have, I think enough to get through in time. 
Uh, we have a remaining problem with the two thorny issues, B1 and B2. And if you flip back on your first side of the page, B1 and B2, they're in bold. <laughs> Why would the Spirit ordain that Jesus be tempted or tested by the devil? And number two, why do the rules for Jesus preclude his acting supernaturally? Uh, we have a partial answer to those questions, but I'm not sure yet a fully satisfactory one. So let's go back one more time and look for hints as to the meaning of this story that come from looking at the context of Matthew's Gospel. This time by looking at the following context of Matthew. And um, at this point, um, I want us um, to turn to a few passages recalling the three temptations of Jesus. He refused to take food. He refused to come down from the temple. And he refused to worship Satan and to do sort of a quick cash pay-in to inheriting the kingdoms of the world. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 54. It's on page 24. The scene is the garden. A sword has been pulled out to defend Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 53, and I think here we see part of the reason why Jesus had to resist the temptation to invoke his supernatural powers. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send no more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen in this way? Jesus is saying, <laughs> at the mere batting of an eyelash, this can all be over. I can just make, I can be back on easy street. And that's the easiest thing in the, in the world for me to do. It reminds me of uh, that hymn, that uh, I don't know how often we, we, uh, we sing it anymore. Uh, I think you'll recognize it, at least if you're over 45, uh, when we get to the refrain. Upon his precious head they placed a crown of thorns. They laughed and said, Behold the king. They struck him and they cursed him and mocked his holy name. All alone he suffered everything. And then comes the chorus. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels. But he died alone for you and me. Turn further to, Pat, to Matthew 27, verse 34. Jesus is on the cross. And this, I think, is a bit more of a debatable um, hint or parallel because we're not quite sure what the significance was of the, at least I'm not, of the giving of... Um, of drink to Jesus. Uh, Matthew 27, 33, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means Cranium Hill, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Just think of the heat uh, in April in Jerusalem, the beating that he'd taken. I don't think there were too many uh, water coolers on the path between um, the various places in which he was tortured. And so the whole idea of Jesus having to deny the temptation to invoke his supernatural powers in order to eat bread uh, became significant. Let me give you another verse from that same hymn. When they nailed him to the cross, his mother stood nearby. He said, woman, behold thy son. He cried, I thirst for water, but they gave him none to drink. 
Then the sinful work of man was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Compare the second temptation, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 to 44. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads. Now Jesus is on the cross. He's been lifted up on a place of sacrifice akin to that high point of the temple. They're shaking their heads and they're saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Since you're the son of God, jump down from there. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. To the howling mob he yielded, he did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame he took alone. And when he cried, it is finished, he gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels but he died alone for you and me. Finally, the third temptation comes in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he has fulfilled the Father's will of undergoing the passion. Now comes the time when he can say, as he says in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then comes a little taste of that sweet divine pampering that he accomplished when he was obedient in the wilderness. And when he died for our sins on the cross, procuring the benefits of Israel's inheritance. And he says, and remember, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Three lessons, I didn't put them down, uh, because I thought you might just kind of run to the end, and, and then the tension in the sermon would be broken. But let me suggest three things in answer to the question, what should the preacher say about uh, the temptation of Jesus? Well, first, Jesus' ordeal was so great, and I find this hard to imagine, that he had to train for it. He had to undergo training. You know, I, I, I just can't imagine how, how difficult this was for Jesus, and it's obviously appropriate to meditate upon on Lent, at Lent. But, you know, um, it'd be awful enough for me, 10 years from now, or three years from now, to undergo some awful death. But imagine how much worse it would be if knowing, A, that it was coming, 
B, that it was the Father's will, and C, that you could fix the problem with a bat of an eyelash. Jesus' ordeal for us, which we recall at Lent, was so great as to warrant Jesus himself training for 40 days. On a more encouraging note, or perhaps on a, on a slightly higher note, <clears throat> Satan is no match for God. I can imagine Satan coming home and frustrated. You know, he said, I just spent you know, all these days trying to tempt Jesus, and I, I nearly had him. But at least I tried. And then he gets home, and he hits the message machine, and there's a message from God. And the message is, hey, fella, thanks for practicing my son. I couldn't have asked for a better coach. Great job. Thank you. And he just goes, ooh. So who's, who's in charge here? And who's, it's worth keeping in mind who's in charge here, right? And then thirdly, in reflection of our thoughts about Lent, <clears throat> enduring matters. <laughs> Deprivation in keeping with the will of God matters. Because if Jesus hadn't endured and he hadn't been successful, we'd be in deep trouble. You remember what Romans 8.28 says? Uh, now that I've mentioned it, I'm going to forget it. But it's all things work together for good to those who love God um, in accordance with his purposes or however else. Or Joseph in the Genesis. Um, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about a great salvation. So the things that we go through in life, we don't always understand them, but I think we can take assurance from this, that God wants to strengthen us for his purposes. And so we shouldn't uh, say no to suffering, and that's something worth uh, keeping in mind in Lent. And with that, we'll close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your, your temptation. We're um, struck at what uh, it took for Jesus to endure the sufferings that he did on our behalf. This season of Lent, we're mindful of uh, those sufferings, and we are mindful that you call us to participate in the sufferings of Christ, and uh, that is a privilege. Um, help us to um, enter into the spirit of Lent, uh, not scoring points, but um, depriving ourselves and thinking about his sufferings, that we might be more appreciative of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And these things we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.